Hello, and welcome to Cultural Standpoints. I'm Katie. And I'm Sarah. And in this episode, we're going to talk about oysters, not on the half shell, but in their natural habitat. So, Sarah's from a small town on the Chesapeake Bay. Yeah, I grew up with my dad raising oysters as a hobby. He loved that they had the power to naturally clean the bay. And Katie is actually helping me brand an oyster farm them in the process of starting. So we talk about oysters on the reg and learned how much their potential parallels a broader conversation and movement. As a society, we're becoming more aware and concerned about our own personal effect on the environment and what we can do to minimize waste. Whether it's eliminating plastic straws, trying to live a zero-waste lifestyle, or just being better at recycling, there's a lot of talk going on about being more conscientious of what we leave behind. But what we don't always think about are pollutants that could be naked to the human eye, yet have huge effects on things like our oceans, rivers, and bays. And that's one of the reasons oysters have always appealed to me. My dad taught me about oysters and how they can clean the water, and I've learned even more now starting my own farm. So basically, oysters are filter feeders. They feed off of phytoplankton in the water, and a single oyster can filter up to 50 gallons of water a day. They do this by removing excess nitrogen and phosphorus from runoffs from the water and by incorporating into their shells and tissues as they grow. They're just like little soldiers basically cleaning the water. Several experts described oyster reefs to us as being similar to coral reefs. Like coral, they're natural structures that help break down wave action and prevent erosion. They also provide habitat to several hundred species, if not more. A project that I've always admired is the Billion Oyster Project. It's happening in the middle of New York City in the Hudson Bay and has been going on for about over 10 years or so. Based off of that 50-gallon-a-day model, they've estimated that it will take a billion oysters to clean the bay. I first heard about it through Instagram and have followed their progress ever since. Last I heard, they're up to 18 million oysters they've put into the bay. The same people who started Billion Oyster Project have also started the New York Harbor School located on Governor's Island in New York. It's a high school that teaches kids not only math, English, and other primary subjects, but also things like scuba diving, underwater welding, and all kinds of stuff. It's insanely cool. And I actually got to spend spring break up in New York City and met up with Murray Fisher, the guy who started both Harbor School and Billion Oyster Project. Everyone that we talked to about it and said we want to engage a million public school kids in restoring a billion oysters, everyone was like, that's amazing, how can we help? So virtually every conversation we had created an ally, which is part of how we knew that we were onto something because most people were like, that has to happen, how do we help? Billion Oyster Project and the New York Harbor School are just two examples of how people are using oysters as a means to create natural and positive environmental change. Some other people doing it are a bit closer to home here in Richmond. The Virginia Institute of Marine Science and University of Maryland have been working together on a project like this in Harris Creek, Maryland. We spoke with Mark Brush and Lisa Kellogg at VIMS to better understand the project. Along with other scientists, they've developed a software program that simulates the Harris Creek's ecosystem and shows you real-time effects that the oysters are having in improving the water quality. It's also helped them quantify how much nitrogen and phosphorus is possible to remove in the creek based off of any set amount of oysters. While they were talking about this, I kept imagining the Oregon Trail, that computer game we played in elementary (laughs) school. Because with Harris Creek, you can choose your own adventure in terms of where you want to place the oysters in the creek and the quantity of oysters you want to put there. So your input generates an output. You can say, well, what if we restored 10 times what we did? Or what if we hadn't done anything? Or if I have 10 million oysters I just got out of the hatchery, where should I put them, right? And you can play with those things on on the 
in the model and, and run it, and it will tell you what the added benefit would be from that action. They put a lot of oysters in Harris Creek, but you never know, you know, is it really enough to make a difference? And so, when, you know, we run the model and come to find out uh, the oysters are able to remove well over 100 percent, 200, 300, 400 percent of the nutrients that are coming in from the land and from the water, from, from the watershed. All right, so learning this and knowing now how much potential oysters have to improve our waters, why isn't more being done to use them in this way? And it might be because large corporations have yet to take the lead or get involved. Lisa explained that in order to get corporations to play in the oyster game, they'll need to get something in return. And that's why nutrient trading programs have been introduced in many Chesapeake Bay states. But much of this concept is still in the works. You know, I mean, you've got to have a mitigation bank that manages it all. What are you going to trade for what? And, you know, there's all these issues of if you pollute in one sub-watershed, can you buy a credit from another one? Or do you have to be within the same sub-watershed or the same watershed? So, you know, sort of who can trade from one area to another? What's an acceptable trade? It's a very complicated way to do it, but it's, you'll hear it referred to as sort of a, a market solution to, to nutrient removal. And if you think about it, state boundaries make it even harder to enforce laws that could enable oysters to affect change in the Bay. The Bay's watershed covers six different states. That's six different state governments that need to enact laws and to follow the Chesapeake Bay Preservation Act. It's tough even getting one state to commit, and outside of coastal areas, the middle of the country isn't really affected by this. I think it depends on the community. So there are some communities around the Bay that have been significantly impacted by various oyster activities. Um, for example, one of the places that we've done work is up in Harris Creek. And so I think people in that region of Maryland are very aware of oysters and oyster reef restoration. But I think, you know, if you ask somebody from Ohio, they would know far less. I mean, I think through greater awareness and understanding of how natural systems can function and help be part of the solution to nutrient remediation builds the public will to pay the tax dollars and commit those tax dollars to restoration projects. And if you don't have sort of the public and political will for those large-scale restoration efforts, then they're not going to happen. They won't be funded. As a country, because we aren't being held to a broader regulatory framework, it's tough getting any of these projects or experiments to be widely accepted and implemented. Yeah, I know that Murray had to go through so much red tape to get the Billion Oyster Project started. He walked me through his process, and honestly, it sounded like a nightmare. It's a really complex system to try and create an entirely new regulatory framework to restore oysters in waters that are closed for shell fishing. So that's been frustrating because it's a this, the state is having to spend a lot of time on our permits, and we're having to spend a lot of time on our permits, even though everyone agrees, and there's been a hundred years of science and data that says restoring oysters, you know, native oysters to the harbor is beneficial for the ecosystem. So we're kind of left with the question, what is in our control? Yeah, you know, I think we all face that dilemma. We're becoming more knowledgeable about things that have a negative effect on the environment, and many of us want to help, but it can just feel really overwhelming. Yep, you can have the best of intentions, but a lot of our ability to make a good decision for the environment depends on what we do or don't have access to. So let's talk about what you can control as an individual. One thing we talked to Lisa and Mark about, and I'm trying to keep more so in mind, is our chemical output. 
things like fertilizer or other additive chemicals we might add to our lawn all run off somewhere, usually into the water. And I'm not a homeowner, so another way I'm thinking about this in terms of having a positive impact is by voting with your dollar. So Murray reminded us how oysters are a much more sustainable food choice compared to other protein sources. Unlike beef, pork, chicken, wild fish, oysters don't require any extra water, fertilizer, food, pesticides, or herbicides, which many plants and animals tend to need. The oyster is basically the little mollusk that could. Yeah, it's kind of a badass. It is. (laughs) This was a really fun topic for us to explore and learn more about. We'd just like to give a shout out to Murray Fisher, Lisa Kellogg, and Mark Brush. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and time with us. And thanks for our listeners for listening. We (laughs) hope this episode made you hungry. This episode of Cultural Standpoints is sponsored by Rugs, Rugs, Rugs. Find the rug of your dreams and make sure to use our discount code MIGHTYMOLLUSK. That's M-I-G-H-T-Y-M-O-L-L-U-S-K for 10% off at checkout.